To what will probably be the last Talking Space episode of the year 2009. I am Sawyer Rosenstein, and with me, as always, is the greatest panel. Let's start with Mark Ratterman. How are you, Mark? Either you're having as much technical problems as everybody else for this recording, or you're speechless. Go ahead. <laughs> Couldn't resist. When you have communications problems, it's uh, it it gets you laughing at some point. So good evening, Sawyer. <laughs> okay. Good evening to you too, Mark. You had me scared there a second. Uh, Gina, you are also having some technical problems, so I hope you're still with us and welcome, Gina Hurlihy. Thank you, Sawyer. I'm here and I'm still connected. For now. <laughs> For now. <laughs> and Gene, you're coming in five by nine, so welcome as well to you, Gene McCulka. Uh, thank you, Sawyer. We're kind of sort of beating all, beating the, the daylights out of the uh, the gremlins, all, all four of us here tonight, but uh, we'll hold it together. All right. To any of our listeners out there, if you have any gremlin spray for computers, please send it to the Talking Space podcast. We could all use it. Thank you. <laughs> Definitely tonight, I'll tell you. All right. Now let's get to our first story, which actually has to do a little bit with the communications issue, because... <laughs> There was actually an article that was on ScienceMag.org and their Science Insider that was released on December 17, 2009, saying that there was an exclusive leak that President Obama talked with Charlie Bolden, who is currently the administrator of NASA, and they apparently discussed an additional $1 billion going towards NASA budget in 2011, but at the same time scrapping the Ares-1 project in favor of the heavy lift launcher which apparently will save a little bit of money and get us back into space sooner. There have been plenty of other reports, such as one in the Orlando Sentinel on December 18th, that stated that there is not any confirmed evidence. So what do we think about this rumor, and do we hope that it's true or false? Well, to uh, just sort of lay down a little bit of the groundwork, there was a meeting between uh, uh, President Obama and, and NASA Administrator Charlie Bolden on Wednesday of last week. The minutes of that meeting that have not been made public and probably won't be for some time. But out of this, uh, this article came out just about virtually the next day um, from Science Insider uh, saying that, uh, well, Ares 1 is, is officially dead and that uh, the $3 the $3 billion that NASA wanted is on its way and there's going to be an additional $1 billion earmarked for research into a new heavy lift vehicle and that uh, the uh, the vehicle could be according to the article here the vehicle could be ready to fly as early as 2018 and um, other countries Europe, uh, Europe Japan and Canada would uh, help uh, work on the lunar lander which would probably replace the Altair. So it was a rather explosive deal. We were kind of sort of scratching our heads if this is real or what. In fact, I was actually watching some of the Twitter feed from 
some of the NASA folks, and they were like, you know, I'm not too sure this is real ourselves. And I remember Sawyer and I, we had Sawyer and uh, uh, you and you and me sort of had some offline discussions about it too, and we were kind of like, huh, this is interesting. Then all of a sudden, I guess it was the next, almost the next day, the uh, Orlando Sentinel in their uh, the Right Stuff uh, blog there basically said, um, you know, this whole thing did, may not be the case at all. Uh, the article just said, yeah, hold on there, Sparky. Uh, there isn't any confirmation on this. And uh, the White House is none too happy about this information leaking out anyway. So there could be some sort of water to this whole thing. There may not be. Who knows? I think for sure, though, that the announcement, if any, and I believe, uh, uh, Gina, you had indicated that Miles O'Brien had come up with basically the same conclusion, that I don't think we're going to hear anything about this until the the State of the Union address in February. And my bet is there's probably going to be some sort of Kennedy-esque speech pending with reference to all this during the State of the Union. And, uh, We'll just see how it all plays out. But uh, I'm not, you know, I'm still scratching my head. I'm trying to figure out what the devil happened here and how this whole whole thing started. Oh, I know. And I'm still trying to figure out what's true and what's not. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know whether I'm happy or upset of their choice. I know this is still a rumor and nothing is confirmed yet. And the Ares 1X test flight looked great. But when you think about it, it gets us sooner, which is great. But at the same time, I'm thinking if they're trying to rush it, does that mean that it's any safer or not? And also the fact that if they're outsourcing everything to other countries, that's great. But at the same time, that's taking away jobs from Americans that could really use it. So it has its pros and cons, and I'm not sure which side to go with. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I'm not. A, I'm sort of scratching my head on this, too. I'm, I'm kind of wondering... Um, well, obviously, the, I don't think they're going to rush the thing with reference to safety. I think after the shuttle program is, is over, I think we might have learned our lessons from that and uh, realized that you, know, you need a, a good crew escape you know, system, which the shuttle lacks and so on. And I'm sure the astronaut corps is going to be you know, examining the safety issues very closely with any new vehicle. But uh, I'm sure the you know when when this particular news broke, I'm sure the folks that were advocating um, the direct plan, which was just having one heavy lift vehicle do all the no pun intended heavy lifting, I'm sure they were popping the corks because they thought, well, geez, we've actually won. Our configuration was the winner in the in the whole thing. I'm not too sure you know that's going to be the case or not. Yeah, I, I'm still really on the fence. I still don't know what to believe on this. Um, I know uh, it looks it looks to me that Aries 1's days may be numbered because even the Augustine Commission basically said right now in the current state of affairs that there isn't uh, there really isn't a place for it right now. Um, Aries 1 was supposed to launch the uh, the Orion on space station missions, and the way things are, are looking like it's it's going to pan out. The space station may be splashed before the Orion is ready. So, you know, it, it, it's just, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm still sort of confused and, and, and on the fence here. I just have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Is the heavy lift vehicle basically the exact same thing as the space shuttle combining two and one, except upright like the Saturn V rocket? Well, that's a good question, Sawyer. Again, we don't even know the configuration of what we're talking about. 
I mean, there were there were several configurations being talked uh, uh, to by the uh, the H uh, the uh, Augustine committee, and one of them was you know a a shuttle shuttle derivative. The other one, if you can brush off your history books, kind of sort of looked like uh, the old shuttle C configuration from the 1990s, where you had something that basically looked like the space shuttle sitting there, or at least the external tank with the two boosters with the two SRBs at either end and a sort of a cargo container of some sort sitting where the shuttle should be. And that was another configuration that was talked about at the hearings. And so we don't even know what this heavy lifter, whatever it is, is, is even looking like. Yeah, I already heard a rumor that um, the Orion capsule was has already been downgraded or downsized. It was supposed to carry crews of six. Now it was supposed to be downsized to a crew of four. So I wonder if putting it up top the uh, Ares 5, we can automatically go back to the original plan size of that. That may be a consideration, too, why the Ares 1 seems undoable, and maybe going with Ares 5 may work better. Yeah, but I also think, too, that the crew of 6 and the crew of 4, the crew of 6 just reminds just may be dealing with a uh, ISS resupply or an ISS you know, crew transfer mission. I don't know if you want a crew of six and and something that small for any length of time. And I would think, but but you're absolutely correct, though. I think there was there was no rumor. It was supposed to be a crew of six for an ISS mission and then a crew of four for a lunar flight. I don't know if that plays into the Orion design or not right now at this point, because I don't think Orion's going to be ready to meet the station. Yeah, there's a lot that's uh, to be determined. Um, You know, when I first read about the Ares 5 and started looking into details on it, to me it was a, a, a great concept to have something that had the kind of lift capacity that it was going to have and the size that it could put in orbit, you know, and then to see options thrown out as different ways of handling crew and cargo, and yeah, I hate to see the wheel reinvented. I think they've got something they can fly with for the foreseeable future if they would just if NASA would just be allowed to go ahead and design it and build it. Yeah, Mark, I have a I mean, shoot, the the infrastructure for the Ares was being set up or at least one of the towers what was anyway when we were down there. In fact, here's a tidbit from today. NASA and the contractor engineers have developed multiple options for detuning the Ares 1 rocket to prevent any problematic thrust oscillations. So today, they posted on uh, one of NASA's blogs that they've finalized plans for, for these options. And uh, they're, they're moving ahead with previous plans made, subject, of course, to the whims of Washington. I have a question for you guys. Do you think Ares 1 has got a place right now? Uh, yes, I do. Unfortunately, Man. I think its place is in the trash heap. I was afraid I was going to hear something like that. Yeah, at this point, it honestly sounds like they're getting rid of it, and even though they've done the Ares 1X test, they keep delaying the Ares 1Y test from 2013 to 2014, and it just seems like it keeps getting pushed back, and everybody's losing track of it, and it seems like it's just going off course from its original plan, and at this point, it seems like their best option would almost be to completely take it and scrap it, and 
I wouldn't be surprised if that's high up right now on NASA's decision. I mean, if there's even rumors going around about it, it's very likely. Yeah, I, I you know, as much as I hate to say this, I have, have to, uh, I have to agree with you there, gang. Um, I, I just don't think Ares One is is long for this world, given the fact that I just don't think it has a place within the infrastructure as as we see it right now, because I think its initial design was to just go ahead and get the Orion into low Earth orbit so it could uh, you know, deliver uh, a crew to the International Space Station, and I just don't think the vehicle is going to be ready before ISS is splashed in 2020. Right. I mean, if we can get to the moon on a Saturn V rocket by taking our all of our equipment in one launch, why do we need to do two launches? That's just It's got to be more expensive even if the Ares-1 rocket is a lighter, more efficient rocket, it has to be more expensive to man yeah. and offer two launches. Yeah, I, it, it probably is a more expensive um, option. I, I have to agree with you there, Gina, but the Ares-1 was sort of put together uh, to try to, I guess, stay in step with a recommendation that the, uh, the Columbia Accident Investigation Board made where you cannot carry and cargo in the same vehicle anymore. And I think as as the plan went went forward, I think NASA took that literally and said, okay, we're going to fly crew separate and we're going to fly cargo separate. And the reason why we have Ares 1 today was to go ahead and fly crew separately from cargo. I mean, even if, if I recall with the Constellation infrastructure, the lander is supposed to fly on its on its own. Uh, un, unpiloted, and that uh, the uh, Orion would rendezvous with the lander in uh, in Earth orbit, and then take everything out. Unlike the way we did it with Apollo. But why is the cargo itself a danger to the crew? I mean, if there's if there's you know hazardous chemicals or something that they're taking with them, I can understand that. But a, a lunar rover or a uh, food enough food and water to start setting up a lunar base. How is that? Dangerous. I'm trying to, yeah, I'm, I'm trying to remember what the rationale was um, about that. I, I, I don't remember offhand. I guess I could probably I, look it up. And, I think and I remember. Okay, Sawyer, save me here. From what I can remember, <laughs> it's not really as much a danger to the crew. It's just they believe that they'd be able to get more supplies and more fuel in and make it more efficient if there was one that was dedicated just to the crew. Because you have almost 80-90% of the vehicle, or I don't know the exact percentage, but you have a large percentage of the vehicle being taken up by the equipment that you're bringing up, which limits the amount of space that you have to live and do the science research that the shuttle was originally designed to do. Sounds like they would have to go with multiple launches anyways, so if we're going to launch multiple vehicles to get back to the moon, then why not launch multiple vehicles of the same kind and make it the one that can carry the most? And thus... You know, that's. I think that might be the rationale for the for the heavy lift vehicle only um, uh, path there. I'm just still confused on the complete design of the heavy lift, whether it's meant for both crew and cargo, or it can launch crew or cargo or what. Because depending on the different options, it sounds like NASA's going against the Augustine Commission or even the Bush uh, administration when they had their vision for exploration. Either one of them, uh, their outlines. Yeah, well, well, Constellation as we knew it was was trashed as of um, January 20th of this year after uh, President Obama was sworn in. 
But to answer the question as far as the architecture is concerned, um, I actually st still think that the design is going to be, I mean, look, well, if you look at direct, for instance, um, it's sort of a shuttle der derived thing. But who knows what the, the, the real design is gonna is gonna look like at this point? I mean, you know, as I said, the, the the entire constellation architecture is just about trashed. I think so, and I think while we're talking about trashed, we should move on to our next uh, subject here. <laughs> That's a good segue, Sawyer. Indeed, the reason I mentioned trashed is because of a an American politician who, if I'm correct, is actually from the state of California who goes by the name of Nancy Pelosi. She's the Democratic Speaker of the House. And she was actually quoted talking about NASA. You'd think that'd be good, right? Wrong. Because in a quote that she said about it was, quote-unquote, I myself, if you are asking me personally, I have not been a big fan of manned expeditions to outer space in terms of safety and costs. But people could make the case technology is always changing. Right now, when I first heard that, I was steaming mad, and I completely disagree with her, but that's why we're talking about it. So what are your opinions on it? I'm about the same boat you are there, Sawyer. Um, this is, again, coming from uh, physorg.com. Uh, the article, again, dated uh, December 17, with Nancy Pelosi's comments. I was never really, I will be honest with you, um, just, just to give you a proper perspective, I was never a big Pelosi fan to begin with, and these common comments just sort of sealed the deal. Uh, she vowed, quote, uh, according to the article, she vows harsh scrutiny of all spending requests. And she will be asking what the mission was, how the money will be effectively spent, what kind of period of time it is, and so on and so forth. This to me, I mean, I, I understand, you know, being wanting to be a good steward and wanting to be a good uh, you know, watchdog of, of public funds is one thing, but to go ahead and from a state that literally, I mean, the Ames Research Center is in California, Caltech's Jet Propulsion Laboratory is in California, which is also a NASA uh, affiliated uh, installation. All of the orbiters, all of them, were built in Palmdale, uh, California. Um, and, I mean, do I have to go on as far as how critical space has been to that state? Uh, and what do we need to do to go ahead and, and wake this individual up? And I'm wondering, too, now, how fierce is she going to actually fight the White House now once the White House has made its decision with reference to uh, the Augustine Committee and its recommendations are the White House and Nancy Pelosi being the uh, the Speaker of the House going to be at loggerheads with uh, with this whole plan. I'm really not sure at this point. I'm still, to be perfectly honest, just angry at what she said. And just a note to put out there, what we say does not reflect our political views in any way, shape, or form. This is just our opinion on our on the comments that were placed at hand. But personally, I think that. She's looking at it all wrong. No matter what she tries to argue, there's always a contradictory statement. And that's the problem, going back to the same thing that we've discussed at least four episodes already. I think that's a problem with NASA's getting the word out there. They get it out, which is true, and it's great, but they don't get it out as much. Because, obviously, Pelosi doesn't realize exactly what's going on. Because when you even quote one thing that she said... And that was that everything is in competition for the dollar, and a judgment will be made as to what it does in terms of job creation. Job creation. If only they knew exactly what it did in job creation, 
especially for her state of California. Like you were just mentioning, when you think of all the different NASA facilities that are out there employing people, not just in manned spaceflight, but in both. When you think about the Jet Propulsion Laboratory out in Pasadena, like you were saying, and there's plenty of others. It's it's sad that she doesn't realize what's going on. Exactly. I mean, the whole aerospace industry is is, is burgeoning in California, and I'm, I'm just a little... Yeah, you know, I'm I'm scratching my head a little bit as to why somebody from from California of all thing of all places would be making a commentary like this. I mean, to her credit, you know, she did give a tip of the hat to to the Apollo program and and uh, uh, so on. But she basically said too, we've got to make sure that our dollars are spent right. And you know, to her credit too, she that that's fine. You know, she's being a good steward of the uh, the public funds. But you know. I'm I'm a little confused as to why she would go ahead and and pound the daylights out of uh, out of an agency that is spurring off high tech jobs in a at a time when we we really need that uh, to stay competitive in in the world market. I mean, you know, we're not we're not spinning off um, you know hamburger flipping jobs, and we're we're spinning off stuff that we've <laughs> we we we're trying that's trying to make this economy competitive with the rest of the world. Governor Schwarzenegger at the rollout of Spaceship Two, which happened to be in New Mexico, where the spaceport's going to be built or is being built. So Governor Schwarzenegger, representing California, was certainly there, part of this new space revolution. He certainly must have a handle on this. Yeah, I think he was there, and yeah, I'm 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 a little surprised. I mean, um, that that you know the, the speaker wouldn't. I mean, I know she, you know things are kind of. In going, you know, things are kind of interesting over in D.C. now um, with the healthcare debate and all that. But you know, it would have been nice to just, you know, sit there and type a letter at least and say congratulations, good luck. We'll be watching. I mean, that shows at least you've got some sort of interest. And I'm sure um, California, even though the spaceport is in uh, New Mexico, California will be playing a part in uh, in that. In some way, shape, or form, either building uh, the vehicles or building the the helping to build the infrastructure. California-based companies, anyway. I think someone needs to put a job creation chart or graph in front of her with what NASA can do. You think? Yeah, I, Just to add one more quote in there, uh, one that I'm really shocked at the most is, "quote unquote." But again, we have to see dollars well spent creating jobs, accomplishing the mission. You don't think we're doing that already? You don't think your state is especially helping out? Just to, to reiterate here, too, um, Congresswoman uh, Susan Cosmos, who is the, from the uh, uh, 24th District over in Florida, uh, basically wrote Nancy Pelosi a, an interesting little rebuttal uh, the day after. Mark, forgive me if, if I'm, I'm wrong on this. Does she represent the, uh, the Brevard County? and where Kennedy Space Center is, or is that somebody else? I remember what you're talking about. I, I'm not positive. I think you're right, but I'm not sure. Well, anyway, she basically writes, and I'm quoting here, and this is, um, the letter was reprinted on spaceref.com. Uh, she writes here, quote, I urge you to keep in mind the, both the tangible and intangible de- benefits provided by investing in NASA and our nation's human spaceflight program. There is no question that increased funding for NASA, as recommended by the review of the Human Spaceflight Committee, will help create and retain highly skilled, 
high-paying jobs across the country, including up to 7,000 direct jobs currently at risk in Florida, close quote. And that kind of just sort of tells it, tells it like it is. And I love the, the way the, the word she used there, which is invested. This is something that I've been, I've been saying for, for a while now. We're not, you know, we've never spent a dime in, in space. You know, we, we've never spent one dime. We've invested it back down here on Earth. You know, the public perception is that we've, we've you know, shot up bags of money up to the moon or something like that. When in reality, that's not the case at all. We've we've invested it all down here in jobs, in in infrastructure, in education, and so on, and not for anything too. Yes, and in spinoffs, and and those spinoffs have benefited us us in a lot of ways. They've also given private companies ideas to exploit some of these technologies that NASA's come up with, and thus again create a lot of more new jobs in the process. If there's some new widget that some company has made because of something that NASA has done, well, guess what? You still need to hire somebody to build those those widgets and get them out the door. So, hello, um, you know, it, the economic benefits are just incredible, and I just wish um, a lot of not just not just Nancy Pelosi, but a lot of others up uh, up on the on the hill, and a lot of our hired help up there realized that uh, uh, this is the case. I have to be perfectly honest here. It doesn't seem like she realizes exactly what NASA technology is and how much of it comes down to Earth. I don't even think she realizes that she has space technology to thank for her body because she doesn't even realize that her beloved Botox treatments come from space, <laughs> from bacterial right. research that was done in microgravity. <laughs> That's very true. Oh, and Here's a quote from Governor Schwarzenegger that um, he made at the event of um, the rollout of Spaceship Two. He said, space is our next great frontier. When it comes to space enterprise, California is and always has been at the forefront and leading the way. Can't really deny that too much, other than, you know, Texas and Florida might have a case, but California has been pivotal and a pioneer in the space industry for a very long time. Exactly, and I'm surprised that somebody representing California, um, especially somebody of the stature of the Speaker of the House, who, who is, what, number three in succession, uh, doesn't realize that. That, to me, is frightening. Any comments on this? Any last comments before one of us starts uh, getting ready to punch Nancy Pelosi in the face? <laughs> Hard, hardly. It's just maybe maybe sending a, a wake-up call, but... You know what I mean. Figuratively, <laughs> of course. Of course, I'm just kidding. I would never hurt anybody. Anyway, though, I'd say with that, we can move on, correct? Yeah, I think we, we're ready to move on. Now, that's definitely one interesting comment for the end of the year for the last episode, so why not say it? So, also, since this is the last episode, one thing that we're going to do here is discuss a year in review, basically. Don't worry, it's not going to be as boring as most year in review in 2002 uh, no <laughs> what we're going to do is we're going to take this is not going to be a nasa b-roll what we're going to do is we're going to take a look at some of our favorite topics of 2009 in space discuss those a little bit and also since this is 2009 and the end of the first decade of the 21st century we're also going to take a look back at the last 10 years in space and talk about our favorite moments in the first decade 
of this century. So let's start off with everybody going around for the year of 2009. And Gene, I have a feeling we know yours, so why don't you start us off? Oh, okay. Um, I know another member of the panel, too, is a Hubble hugger. Um, for this year, it would probably have to be um, the SDS-125 flight, which uh, rescued Hubble. Um, that flight, for a while, we thought would not actually happen um, if it wasn't for the persistence of a few folks back here on Earth, um, uh, Barbara McCluskey being one of them. So uh, thank you, thank you, Senator. Uh, she was very, very uh, persuasive in getting that flight together. Um, Michael Griffin as well for agreeing to do it. And um, the rest, as we say, is history. The, uh, the mission was performed flawlessly by the crew, and uh, we will be reaping the, the benefits of, of that flight for at least a few years to come. And uh, uh, that will make sure that Hubble will still be alive um, for quite some time, at least until the, uh, the James Webb telescope gets established. And we'll be still delivering some great photographs and great science, and we'll be able to uh, uh, to see further and further into the universe. Um, so that, to me, was probably one of the best moments of the year. And for me personally, uh, on a personal note, with uh, uh, special moments, um, was probably the launch of STS-129 and the vantage point I had for it. Um, I was one of the, the lucky 100, as uh, as we were known down there, that uh, attended the STS-129 tweet-up and was about three miles away um, on November 16th when uh, Atlantis uh, took off for lower Earth orbit. And, uh, wow, um, that was quite a privilege uh, to be uh, right there at the press site watching that and uh, so hats off and, and thank you to NASA who, and everybody who had anything to do with uh, uh, getting that particular event off the ground because it, it was probably going to be a memory that I'm going to have burned in my brain for, for quite some time. Um, it was also great to, uh, to meet uh, finally some folks that uh, um, I had only been talking to on Twitter for, for a while um, Mark, you among them, um, and uh, it was that also made uh, for a real, real special moment um, during that that period of time. So, if I had to pick two things out for this year, though, that those would be my two. All right, and uh, Gina, what was your favorite moment of 2009 in space? I don't know if you'd call it one single moment, but. I'd say for 2009, I'd say something uh, extraordinary, which I think is the new administration. President Obama um, has handpicked his man to lead NASA, Charlie Bolden, and his deputy, uh, Lori Beth Garber. I, I just think it's an exciting time. I mean, these two people will shepherd the new space policy. Um, when we talked to Tom Jones last week, um, you know, I think he put out there that uh, the previous administration, even though they set some lofty goals, uh, underfunded them. And um, the Augustine Commission was certainly a huge space story all of 2009 and um, their findings and what they discovered and how many meetings they had and comments from the public. And they put it all together and basically they went to the president and said, we don't have enough money to do what we would like to do. So... 
I think um, 2009 may go down as a pivotal year for space and NASA with the um, change of the helm. And uh, we've got a new administration who's hopefully going to, you know, make some very positive announcements about uh, NASA's goals. And I think Charlie Bolden's the right guy to, to lead the way. All right, Mark, what was your favorite moment in space of 2009? Any launch is a thrill, but this was actually uh, a little ahead of that in, in a timeline. But um, I think, you know, a definite thrill for me, and it's looking forward to the future, was the uh, the rollout of the first new rocket out of the VAB in 30 years, the Ares 1X. Seeing that on the transporter, you know, come out the door and headed to pad 39B. I'd say that's a pretty good one. Yeah. And for me in 2009, that one's kind of tricky. There's a few. One of them is just because of a personal connection that I have, and that would be the launch and landing of STS-127. The only reason is because it carried up two patches of mine from the Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center and from the Challenger Learning Center headquarters. So that was, you know, just a little bit of a personal note to me. Uh, So in space, I would have to say um, the launch and landing of STS-127. But the other very big moment in 2009 in space didn't actually happen in space. It happened on Earth. And that would have to be the launch of the Space Tweet Podcast, which is now known as the Talking Space podcast <laughs> yeah tell me about it i've um you know I'll, I'll this has been a fun fun trip and uh and gang i'm again i can't uh, think of three better people i'd, I'd rather share a mic with than, than you guys i mean when we first uh, started this little trip uh i guess it was in august um for me it was a four-year wait to do this and uh it is to say it's exceeded my expectations has been uh, would be an understatement would be a poor understatement at that um, th- this has just been a, a rousing success and I, I have are um, you out there who are listening to this to thank and I have the three other folks here who have uh, uh, given me their uh, their talents and their abilities and just uh, are just phenomenal people to, to be with indeed we have some of the greatest people here now before we go really quickly of the decade what do we think from the year 2000 till 2009 favorite space moments gene go well um i would have to say the announcement of the uh, shuttle retirement and uh the birth of uh, constellation wherever that may go and the promise of uh finally leaving low earth orbit after 40 years and uh, actually going off and uh, picking up the baton that uh, Gene Cernan left behind at uh, Taurus Littro on the moon and hopefully we can uh, it just won't be uh, just for a couple of couple of days this time it'll be permanent this time we'll, we'll hopefully live finally learn how to live off world and and uh, go beyond the moon and onto Mars and and onto the onto the solar system and hopefully out out to the stars. All right, Gina and yours. Say my favorite space story of the decade has to be STS-114, and that would be the return to space mission of Discovery, led by the very first female space shuttle commander Eileen Collins, and she did a phenomenal job leading that mission with some very tricky spacewalks. And she performed uh, the very first um, and very elegant flip of the space shuttle under the space station and um, 
had a flawless landing. And I guess it just goes to show when you got a really hard job, you got to send a woman in to do it. So hats off to Eileen Collins, who is a phenomenal space shuttle commander, or was. Mark, what's your favorite of the decade? Favorite was, um, I, I couldn't tell you which, uh, which shuttle flight it was to the ISS, but it was uh, sitting and watching NASA TV when the astronauts were out on a spacewalk and watching them, you know, traverse the ISS structure hand over hand from handhold to handhold with their safety tethers and just watching all of the mechanics of what went into them even doing simple things of moving from one works position to another and realizing that uh, from my experience with working on you know uh, dinky little things here on earth climbing uh, uh, radio antenna towers that that vary from 35 feet to 90 feet you know that the stuff that I had to do to be careful to to do my job in those things was magnified a hundredfold and technically a, a thousandfold more complicated for the astronauts to, to do their job outside. And of course, recently we talked to uh, Tom Jones, and he described spacewalks and, and missions. And um, you know, I think my my favorite moment of the decade was getting that that real inside glimpse as to what goes on on the missions and how how critical everything is, and yet so often hear the astronauts say how amazing it is to see Earth from space and how it's uh, in many cases there's 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 little moments that, that stick with them forever. Definitely, that was amazing and I have to say my favorite space moment of the decade was actually, if I'm correct, it was in 2007 and that was the launch of STS-118 which successfully carried up and brought back the first educator astronaut to go into space. Me working at the Challenger Centers, I have a really close connection with teachers and space and that entire program. And it was great after Krista McCullough's backup in 1986 when Challenger and STS-51L unfortunately exploded over the Kennedy Space Center, taking the crew with it. Um, Barbara Morgan was her name. She was the backup for her, and she actually uh, was the first educator astronaut to finally fly into space and that was august 8th 2007 it was just great that flight to see teachers finally make it into space and now i believe there's another one lined up for march of next year of sgs 131 so started a whole new thing so we've mentioned our favorite moments of 2009 and the decade what about you send your favorites to at talking space on twitter and we'll be happy to retweet them or maybe even mention them in a podcast in 2010 or you could send it as an audio file with a link to it and we'd be more than happy to actually play it in one of our episodes sorry if i can just add one thing go right um, ahead thank you um if you want to talk about special moments i had one this weekend it and you were there to share it actually i believe i was exactly um my, I took my nephew this weekend to uh, to where you work there, Sawyer, the uh, Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center. Uh, gang, if you ever, to anybody listening to this, if you do get an opportunity to go to one of these things and, and, and you see a Challenger Center around, by all means, go. 
um, if you have an open, if there's an open house, and and the Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center does have open houses once a month, correct, Sawyer? That is correct. The Lower Hudson Valley Challenger Center does an open house the third Sunday of every month. And if you want okay. more information on that, you can call, which is area code 845-357-3416, or check out the website, which has the most information, and that's lhvcc.com. And don't forget to follow it on Twitter, at lhvcc. Anyway, um, on to that moment. I, I took my nephew over there, and he was uh, engaged in the simulation, and you wanted this pause real quick for him to go ahead and just take a picture with with, with his uh, you know dorky uncle here and um, he didn't want him to stop I mean he was so engrossed in in the simulation and he was so intent on building building this his task was to build a, a small probe that was going to be fired at the moon uh, to uh, conduct analysis and find out where the where a good uh, uh, landing site would be and he he was just so engrossed in in the simulation you couldn't stop him and i think that too is probably going to be one of my favorite moments space moments of the year because here i was there there's there was the future i thought right there and um uh, that was just an amazing moment to be there and i i've I've got. Uh, I've, I think I got him hooked, and uh, we definitely will be seeing you. Uh, seeing you again next month. I'm glad, and it was a pleasure to finally meet you as well, Gene, in person. Uh, the, the honor was mine, sir. All right. Any last comments in 2009 to be recorded? I have a feeling that one last comment then would be crickets. Correct. <laughs> All right. So. Once again, thank you, everybody, for joining us. Gina, thank you once again for all of your input in 2009. Thank you, Sawyer. It's been a, it's been a pleasure to be a part of this. So glad you were able to join us uh, from our second episode this year, and we hope for you to be with us all of next year as well. Gene, thank you once again for starting this entire endeavor um, earlier this year, and uh, thank you for getting it kick-started and letting me take over the helm for the, uh, the hosting and the editing parts of it. Uh, Sawyer, the pleasure was all mine, and again, I can't think of a better bunch of people to, to uh, be on the air with, and I can't think of a better bunch of folks than our listeners to go ahead and uh, uh, continue to support us, and I'm looking forward to that uh, to con- the uh, support to continue next year. Indeed, and Mark Ratterman, thank you very much for jumping on the bandwagon with us of this little uh, idea that turned into something that was on a grander scale than I ever could have imagined in any of us probably uh, thank you Sawyer thank you Gene thank you Gina uh, I'm always amazed at the depth and breadth of, of the knowledge that each of you has and the things you contribute um, this is just a chance for me to go to school every time we get together and I just want to thank you all definitely we would also at the end of the year like to thank Todd Cecilio who was actually responsible for creating the introductory music that you hear during the program so thank you to him as well and also a special thanks to russ dale who was also responsible for creating the disclaimer for us at the beginning of the podcast too and also especially thank you to everybody who was able to listen to this podcast whether you were with us from the beginning or you just recently joined in 2009 and we hope that you'll be with us once again as we restart our second season in 2010 So have a great holidays, have a happy new year and healthy, and we hope to see you again in 2010. But for now, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are.